Good morning to well. Good morning to. <laughs> oh my goodness. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network, and we are pouring a virtual libation to Comrade George Jackson, who was killed 49 years ago in San Quentin State Prison, and I had an interview back in. 2009 with uh, the late Keelan Yasha and other um, folks who, um, you know, comrades of uh, of, of uh, George and um, and and people that could really sort of fill us in on the the details of of that day and and you know more information about this wonderful man's life and in uh, the prison the prison uh, movement which came out of, of his, 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 his killing and that of his brother, whom we talked about on August 7th, who he was killed. Jonathan Jackson was killed 50 years ago. He was shot uh, and killed at the uh, Marin Courthouse where he um, was taking hostages uh, to, to uh, barter the release of his brother. And Marshalls, um, you know, shot up the van that he was transporting people in. So the whole show is not about George Jackson, um, So, but it's a really good show. So I decided instead of broadcasting the tribute that I did all on George Jackson, I decided to broadcast this particular episode. And I think you'll find it um, enlightening and enjoyable. Peace and blessings. And to those who are, gosh, um, right in the midst of the fire, um, you know, um, you know, good health and and success in in you know getting your things and getting away because you know um, we can replace things but we can't replace our lives, and and people need to be careful because the air quality is really really poor here in the Bay Area since the fires have been burning. Love Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks. We have a great show in store for you today. And we're going to start off with a wonderful piece by Carmen Lundy. Just a second. Oh, my goodness, there's so much happening in the Bay Area today, too, um, this weekend. Oh, that's Miss Lundy. Hey. <laughs> oh, good morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. The plan was to surprise you and play one of your pieces uh, from your latest CD, um, Solamente, and I was going to play Move On. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Go ahead. So wonderful. However, since um, okay. I didn't have it together, <laughs> so like so you could when you when you tuned in when you came into the studio you would have heard it going on. It's like oh you would say oh, yeah I'm in the right place. Uh-huh. However, <laughs> but since I didn't play it yet, why don't why don't you um, tell us about um, uh, Solamente, um, this wonderful um, new release of yours? I believe you have thirty. Uh, albums. Um, no, oh my heavens! You're you're making. You're, 
No, I've been. You know what? I've been performing for over thirty years, so perhaps oh, that's where the, okay. the number thirty comes up for oh, you. I'm like, okay, all right. No, no, no. Uh, this is number eleven. Okay. Solamente is the, my my eleven CD, so I'm into double digits now, which is great. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and um, this one is really different because um, um, all of the pieces are um, are originals, except um, I think. Uh, America the Beautiful, which you arranged. That's correct. Um, so they're all really unique, and uh, I don't know. I was wondering, um, how long did it take you to to put together this this work? And I know originally it was it wasn't supposed to be for wide distribution, and then uh, folks heard it and said, um, you know, you need to let everyone else share this wonderful experience. And so you said, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's and I struggled with that decision for a long time after finishing the project. Um, mm-hmm. But I started it, um, I think the completion was, I looked up and it was five months later. Okay. Yeah, so almost a half a year mm-hmm. consistent working on this project, you know, but in between my trips, you know, the performances and having to just shut the studio down until I get back. And so I think um, by the time I was looking up and, and um, realizing that I was, you know, eleven songs later, and I think it was five months or so. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the project is kind of uh, like so many other things I do when I'm preparing for a new recording. I kind of get into the studio head and workshop a lot of the tunes, and I use a lot of you know today's state of the art equipment. You know, the samplers and the sequencers. Not really samplers, but uh. You know, and um, I do have a studio full of of, of um, instruments, musical instruments, and mm-hmm. and this project um, was special because um, I was kind of struggling with this digital age that we're in, and I didn't want to say goodbye so quickly to the real sound of the real instrument, and I didn't want to say goodbye to um, the real tape recorder, and. and you know, everything is being done on computer now. We have these formats, Logic and Pro Tools. Every people people hear about those things now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wasn't. I just don't have those skills to. I haven't developed the skills to record in that fashion. So, I relied on my mixer, my and my eight track, ADAT, uh, which is a uh, uh, digital audio recorder, but it uses tape as opposed to nowadays when everything is software and, you know, you're working with a, a mouse. Right. So the project was kind of a the last time, the last hurrah <laughs> of 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 being able to workshop uh, some of my music that way. And I stumbled into this idea of playing all the instruments and just as a way to kind of avoid using um, the electronic um, uh, programmed instruments. So that's really what Solamente became, and the, the the content, the music content. Oh my! I mean, that's. I mean, that was. Oh, I don't know how to start with that. So. Oh, we can do it, one or two songs at a time. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I really, I really like how each one of the pieces is so different from others. And when I when I saw the first tune, I know why the cage bird sings. I thought about. Um, you know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and um, uh, the book, you know, that takes his title from that by Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and then, you know, and 
I mean, yours is is not. I mean, it's different. <laughs> it's just that title. Yeah, exactly. And I, yeah, it's just that <laughs> title which I think resonates with a lot of people. But the song itself, mm-hmm. it kind of naturally became that title oh. because um, the 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 um, the the state one finds oneself in when when you are um, full of of a lot of need to of, of self expression. And your life circumstances, kind of like a bird who is really meant to fly, finds itself, you know, some, some person finds the beauty of this bird where they can watch it and stare at it. It's always there to keep them company and, you know, sing a little bit in the morning, afternoon, and evening. But the bird's experience is not what we've, we've kind of thrusted into this experience that it's not really meant to be. And uh, so the song and the lyrics were about, the feeling of of that in one's life, it could have you know it can have uh, depends on your own experience, but it could be anything from the, the way we, um, uh, the, you know, it could be something as horrible as being a battered wife, mm-hmm. you know, to just being a, a performance artist who doesn't really get the chance to to uh, perform or to be heard, or the actor who doesn't ever seem to be able to get that off the script and onto the stage. It's just it's metaphorical for a lot of different life experiences, and the title kind of uh, naturally grew out of the way the lyrics um, unfolded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, what? How? I mean, how do you um, you work with regards to your your compositions? Um, like, for instance, you know, we're speaking about I know why the Cage Bird sings. Um, like, do like is the way you. Um, approach the work, you know, with regards to the creative process unique for each piece, or do you have, like, a system? Oh, oh my. <laughs> there is no method to this madness, huh? Ah. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> no. I think that um, it's really uh, that particular song, I think I might, sometimes I hear the music first, and uh, it's just a way to begin an idea. Sometimes I hear the music as opposed to lyrics first. So I'll hear something that, that is germinating that has more to do with a particular, maybe it's a minor kind of a sound or a major chord sound, or maybe it's even something as simple as a, a rhythmic feel. Uh, in this case, I think it was... Um, the music came first, but sometimes when the music came, comes first, there's a feeling or a, a, some kind of emotional truth behind it. And I try to be in a stream of consciousness where I, I'm hoping to tap into um, what, um, you know, to try and verbalize that uh, a feeling. And sometimes we can do that. Sometimes it's very hard to, when you love someone, to find the exact words you want to say in the moment. And... Um, this 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 tune, um, you know, it just says one word. It just says lonely mm-hmm. for for two measures, you know, or four measures, whatever it is. And then the next word is hungry. <laughs> so th- those lyrics kind of developed. You know, you can see how they just sort of ooze out. And um, I was not, I didn't feel it necessary to write a lot of chords for this particular song. It didn't need it. Just kind of had that steady, um, uh, almost a haunting kind of a, a vamp in it. So 
it again it's it's when I think back as I answer your question, I just remember that I needed to say those words somehow. But it didn't need to have this, you know, long, extended kind of melodic line to express the feeling. And I think Cage Bird succeeded because of that. I think you just kind of get hooked into the the um, the space in between each word, mm-hmm. so that you're drawn in that way rather than having to to digest immediately you know, this full sentence of something or other. And I think the song maybe that's why I let off Salomente with Cage Bird because there's something very uh, that draws you in with that tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. And um, although that's not the tune I'm going to play right now, though. <laughs> um, I'll play that a little bit later. What I really um, like, like I said, is um, how, you know, each piece is so different. So, okay, we have um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and... Uh, and then, um, and then you have Lay Low. I really love Lay Low. It's like, oh. So, you know, I thought, you know, I sort of immediately went to Speak Low. <laughs> oh, uh, Yeah, wow. yeah, that's what I thought of in my mind when I saw Lay Low. I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's very, very nice. And then after that, and then after that, you know, you've got um, uh, Requiem for Catherine. And a friend of mine's mother's name is Catherine. She's a wonderful um poet who lives in uh, Hawaii and she teaches at the University of Hawaii and so I thought about Catherine and and that one is such a meditation it's so beautiful mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. okay we should start with that one because mm. you know it's early in the morning and <laughs> and, and it almost feels like you know you're you're um chanting you know those your the uh the lyrics mm-hmm. you know where you're singing it's Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I don't know what your intention uh, Kath, is. Well, a friend of mine um, passed away earlier this year, mm-hmm. and she was suffering with uh, what we call ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh. Uh-huh. And um, when she passed away, they, of course, celebrated her life uh, with a memorial, which I did not attend, and I chose instead to attend the memorial in a musical way. So I knew that her memorial was taking place, I think, on a Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. And I prepared my studio to record at that very time. So um, I was set up, waited for the clock to strike. I had an idea of what I would start with. And even when you listen to the beginning of Reckon for Catherine, you can see how I kind of uh, eased into the idea so at 2 o'clock on Thursday, I pushed record, and I began to play this piece that I had in my heart for her. And it just, I just went. I just went with it. And when oh. I was done, I mean, I was sort of so I was sort of present at her memorial, yes. but I kind of was hoping that that I could visit with her that way through the music as she goes home or whatever we say when we regard you know, in regards to, mm-hmm. to the the rite of passage in that sense, but um, I um, just played the piece, and this is what it is, and it just kind of, and I thought about her, her personality, I thought about my feelings about the sense of loss. So there's a kind of thing where it changes and it shifts into a little bit of a kind of a happy moment in the mm-hmm. piece, and that was more or less to imply her personality, and then to return to 
the sadness and then comes the the voice and the, what I call the moan more so than a chant. You know, for me it's mm-hmm. more of a moaning, more of a sad sound. And uh, so the piece was written at the very time of her memorial. It just I recorded it that way. It just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. And um, and the length of it is exactly what was then. You know, there was nothing edited. There was nothing shortened or lengthened or anything like that. It just was was, was what it was. And after I had that nucleus on the piano and the voice, uh, which I recorded simultaneously, mm-hmm. went back and added the uh, acoustic bass, added the harp, and uh, you know, and and opened up the other tracks and and kind of filled the sound out that way. So that's kind of what happened. Wow, wow, that yeah. that that was really in the moment, huh? Yeah, very much so. Wow, that's so beautiful. You're playing for her and to her. Yeah. The spirit as it made its transition. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Thank awesome. you for. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful the way you said that. That's exactly what it is. Mhm. Oh, how special! Oh, that's this is perfect. <laughs> I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna listen now and and see if it's if I can hear the moan. I I love the moan tradition in our culture. Mhm. Um, uh, like there's a a spiritual tradition. Um, there was a, a choreographer who was really into the moan. And I had known about the moan tradition. Do you know about that? No, I don't. Oh, okay. All right. What I just, you, you know, my, my, my religious upbringing mm-hmm. uh, may be the closest connection to, to understanding mm-hmm. that uh, need to express the, the human emotion uh, in that sound, with that sound. But more, I don't know any, I don't have any uh, ethnomusicological explanation for it. No, I don't. Okay. No. Well, maybe I might be able to find his name, because it was really fascinating, uh, you know, how he sort of used that that particular sound, you know, as the basis of, of this movement. Mm. It was really, because you can really feel that, that energy when the moan, it's it's a real visceral kind of sound. Yeah. And, and you don't, it's, it's, it translates across culture. Yeah. Similar to the way, you know, the keening does, like, you know, that's not a happy sound. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, when the women, you know, in certain cultures, they have that really high Yeah, pitch. yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so here we go with Requiem for Catherine.
Yeah, I hadn't listened to that in a while. Uh, yeah, that was Requiem from Catherine, and we're speaking to Carmen Lundy yeah, about her latest release, uh, Solamente, the demo project, and she is going to be performing uh, tomorrow in Los Angeles if you are in the area. Let me find that information. Yeah, it'll be, yeah. Um, this is a, a new venue, which is always nice for jazz music when we yes. something comes along. <laughs> and I understand that it's a beautiful venue. I have not seen it, but it's um, in the Radisson Hotel just near the airport, the Los Angeles International Airport. Mm-hmm. It's at uh, Sepulveda and Centinella, and you can't miss it because it's one of the, the uh, very distinctive landmarks in that area. So, uh, yeah, we'll be, I'll be there with Billy Childs on piano. That'll be really nice. Yeah. Very delighted to, for to have an opportunity to work with Billy whenever whenever he, we can. This is our first. I think we did something about a month ago mm-hmm. when we did the CD release event. Um, it's the first time we've played together in five years or more. Wow. And it just so <laughs> happens that the timing is such that we're both here in LA uh, and both available for this night. So very happy to. To be sharing the the stage with Billy Childs, Lorca Harden, and Ryan Cross for uh, uh, two two shows, seven thirty and nine thirty, okay. and that's it. And we're gone after that. <laughs> we're gone for a long time oh, really? after this. So this is nice for for uh, for all of us. Hmm. Okay, so you're gone, as in like gone out of the area. Um... Yeah, I mean my next um, headed to uh, to New York to do a week at Lincoln Center. Oh, and that's nice. uh, in a few Hello. weeks, yeah, September. Mm-hmm. Just got back from a concert in the Amazon, the really? Amazon Jungle, the yeah, Amazon Jazz Festival. For real? Yes, I was there, and I think I was the first jazz singer in the history of uh, the Amazon to sing at the Opera House. So wow. without knowing it, we made a little history, and uh, then I went on to spend some time in Denmark, outside Copenhagen, for... Almost two weeks. So yeah, this is this is uh, quite the little reprieve to be able to do something here at home. Mm-hmm. Wow! So you're um, you're outside of this country a lot. Is... Oh yeah. Mhm. Yeah. The the music takes us all over the world, which mm-hmm. is also another beautiful thing about the way jazz music has and, and this American art form has uh, become an identifiable sound for the rest of the world as it relates to. Uh, America's culture and its beautiful, beautiful music that it's produced, and that's that's jazz. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's great for me to um, to take the music and to, to see the world, really. And um, and it's, it's particularly nice when I get to do it at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first saw you um, uh, in Oakland at Yoshi's a long time ago, um, you were uh, your brother. Um, was also performing with you, um, which was really cool because I, I know that doesn't happen all the time. And I think that at that time, um, I think uh, John Hicks um, passed that week, and uh, and I believe if I'm I don't, if I'm remembering correctly, um, um, I think you you dedicated the performance I was at to his memory. Mm. Um, yeah, if I remember correctly, I have to <laughs> look back at my review. <laughs> and. Um, and I was, uh, you know, looking at your wonderful website and your bio, you know, that you're, um, you know, you were born in Miami, Florida, and you have a birthday coming up in November, the first day, and um, uh, you went to Miami University, and what was really impressive was that 
you um you know you're a real artist um in that you uh are I guess conversing in a lot of the various genres. I mean, you compose, you sing, you act, and the painting is really phenomenal. Your painting is so beautiful. Yeah, that's kind of a strange thing. <laughs> no, not really, because a lot of people paint. Um, I mean, not a lot of people, but you know, um, Abby Lincoln paints, and Miles Davis painted, and um, um, yeah, there are quite a few, quite a few. Yeah, Tony paint. Bennett, I know for mm-hmm. yeah, and. Uh, uh, Billy D. Williams, as a matter of fact. Yes, I saw some of his work. Donna yeah. Summer, mm-hmm. uh, Joni Mitchell. Um, something. It just. I just literally found myself having a very strong interest in in uh, developing that visual side of my expression, and it's just literally. I, I mean, I stumbled into this. I don't have for all that years of musical training and studying and deep commitment and discipline, the last thing I expected to do was pick up a, a brush with, with oils and, you know, apply something to this flat surface and try to do something. Um, and I've really discovered that it's the perfect balance to the the sound. You know, music is all about sound when you get into expression. And the wonderful thing about paint is that it's absolutely quiet. <laughs> so it's a quiet expression for me. It's a way to to um, to kind of sort out musical ideas away from the music, and uh, I I think it, I was inspired to paint images of um, my family as I remember my family as a child. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking for subject matter um, during my earliest images, I was I just wanted to remember my grandparents, um, what it was like growing up, where things were. Miami is such a pretty city. It's just so easy on the eye. And um, and the climate, of course. So there's a lot of uh, things to remember, and I would just kind of go and, and um, pull out photographs that had a lot of humor in them or just kind of st- struck a, a chord in me no pun intended, with, um, you know, those those people, that, that time, that's the, sim- the simplicity of life. And so my paintings, uh, the early images were really to kind of hold on or grab or, you know, kind of freeze some of that uh, in the form of uh, painting. And a lot of the things you see, I don't know what's on my website now because I try to change it, and a lot of those images have sold and, and uh and uh, it's just there for the public to just see and get a sense of the things that, that are uh, in, uh, interesting to me. And uh, it's kind of evolving. So my artwork is now moving into um, found objects, and I'm working a lot with wood and metal and different ways of of constructing those things. And um, it's a wonderful way to come away from music and, and still hear it. But... Um, to, to develop a, that expression, that artistic expression, away from the piano, away from the microphone, away from the bass player and the drummer and the rehearsals and the audience. And it's just been great for me. It's just been great. It's kind of uh, produced a, a whole new, um, maybe even a, a whole new, um, um, in my, you know, as, as, as we go into our later years and we think of retiring, I doubt if I'll ever retire. If I do, 
then the then the artwork will certainly start to proliferate, and I think, uh, in a much greater, much more rapid pace. I look forward to that, too, to just continuing it. It's hard to do it actually when I'm on the road all the time, but I find a way. I travel with my pastels, and I put a little something in the luggage so that, um, in case I'm inspired there, I do have the materials to work with. I was wondering, um, so, I mean, having a brother, you know, Curtis, who, you know, a little older than you, um, actually, no, a little younger than you, um, you know, as professional musician, uh, are there are there just two siblings in your family, or? Well, Curtis and I have recorded, I think Curtis has done most, the, the body of my work, I would say, is mostly my brother on bass, mm-hmm. and he produced, um... Let's see. We he actually produced my first record for Just in Time. This is Carmen Mundy. That was my first recording with, uh, with all originals. Uh, prior to that, I was doing a bunch of standards with some originals thrown in. Curtis and I are the first. Of the, we're the oldest two of seven oh, okay. kids. Yeah, and he and I are. I have, my youngest sister uh, has not really embarked on a professional career, but she also sings. Okay. Um, and uh, Curtis and I just, just knew when we were, I think we were still teens when we were already performing, um, putting our own little bands together and, you know, covering all the, the artists of that time, the 70s, you know, everybody from Ohio Players to Herbie Hancock. We were trying to do everything. And um, that was even before I knew anything about jazz music, per se, but... Um, I think after my first year of college, I began to do um, uh, jazz gigs around Miami, and Curtis and I would um, create bands. That's how we met Bobby Watson, as a matter of fact. Uh Bobby was in one of our first bands. Mm -hmm. Um, He was also uh, a University of Miami alumni. And uh, Steve Williams, who played with Shirley Horn for many years. Mm -hmm. Steve was our drummer for a long time. So, yeah, we have uh, uh, quite a history, Curtis and I, and uh, again, we're um, yeah. I am. I am. I have the distinct honor of being the first <laughs> of seven. Uh huh. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I was looking back um, through my my uh, notes on my blog, and uh, yeah, I, I met you for the first time May 11th. Uh, well, actually, yeah, Thursday, May 11th, 2006, or maybe it was that Wednesday. I don't know, but that's when I posted this, and. Uh, I said, um, Carmen Lundy and her all-star band featuring the incredible Bobby Watson on alto sax, Robert Glasper on piano, her brother Curtis Lundy on contrabass, uh, Jason Brown on drum set, Phil of Church on guitar. Tonight was bittersweet. Woohoo! That was Josie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny when I walked wow. into that now, the music, especially Glasper's solo, moves me to tears. Lundy standing still, swaying to his dancing fingers, other band members gazing at one another. Uh, the ensemble charged because Glasper was charged. All of them plugged into the same socket. So that I was, was you. There. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was you crying in front oh. of me down oh. stage left. <laughs> you know, I was just talking about you the other day. Really? I think I was talking about you last night at dinner, not knowing that I would be speaking to you today, speaking with you, this very person wow. today. <laughs> I cannot believe this. It's so weird. I mean, uh. I'm sorry, folks, but <laughs> I think one of those moments. <laughs> But I had I was just talking about the experience of of you, this woman, in tears, downstage left, just last night at dinner with friends. 
We were talking about the song. The I remember the song. I remember everything. Yeah, yeah. Cause and I that said, was you. Yeah, it says, when Lundy dedicated a song to John Hicks, the wonderful pianist who died Tuesday, May 9th, it all made sense. How could he die before I got a chance to interview him? How could he die before I had a chance to tell him how much I loved his work? Say it again, that is. Hicks, a great fan of violinist Billy Bang, is featured on Bang's album, Vietnam, The Aftermath, and I go and talk about Hicks a little bit. But, yeah, that, I did remember correctly that wow. you did dedicate it to him. Yeah, that was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful um, um, concert. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway. Um, well, you know, you have to tell your <laughs> friends at, uh, at, at Yoshi's that perhaps they should reconsider uh, their uh, lack of interest in, re- in my returning to Yoshi's. But I cannot figure out why they won't, uh, they're not inviting me back. Oh, that's why you don't come back. Oh, yeah, because they, they're not interested in my my music, and they're not interested in having me return to Yoshi's, which I think is kind of a sad. Uh, it's sad. It makes me feel sad because it's not like we have, uh, you know, a truckload of artists of that caliber that you just read available to us at any given day. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, coming through. When we, I mean, that's why it's so funny. That you're saying this because um, that's why we're all over the world. You know, that's why we're in Europe and in, you know, Australia and in Japan and Canada and everywhere else because our venues here don't don't really believe in us the way, the way I think um, some uh, some artists get that kind of attention and some don't. And and what you're hearing from me right now is that I fell in love with performing in Oakland. I I fell in love with the the place, the venue, the audience, the vibe. It's like a very sophisticated, they know what they're doing, they know what they're listening to, they know their artists, just as you have have expressed just now in your own words. And there's so few places like this that we get to play at home, and Yoshi's is one of them. So when we we, uh, approached them, I think, I don't know, earlier this year, maybe sometime late last year about returning, because, you know, you have the new venue now in San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. Right. And do you know that it was just absolutely not going to happen? It was just absolutely no interest. As a matter of fact, I won't even go into the next level of what I'm saying, but it's just that uh, it was just I, I just so saddens me that a, a group like that coming in, you know, Robert Glasper, Philip Church, Bobby Watson, wasn't enough to garner, you know, to 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 to, to kind of uh, affect a, a return engagement. So. Maybe this conversation will kind of go out into the ether and perhaps it someone... It doesn't have to go into the ether. Um, I can send it to them. <laughs> you know, it can, yeah. can, then they may reconsider because, you know, this, this uh, nothing about what we're doing here is promised. So we have to make sure that mm-hmm. when we come with the music and when we bring the music, that's why it has to be so earnest and has to be so for the people. And uh, I'm sorry if we didn't sell out. Maybe we will this time. So I guess it boils down to to our audience um, making a point, and we're, I think we're returning to understanding how valuable live entertainment is. So perhaps in these days when when we're returning to truly what matters and uh, coming away from our uh, computer screens and our laptops and what have you, and it was really time to connect again with the artist while we're here, mm-hmm. you know, rather than posthumously. Um, this is that's what that's what I love about 
the commitments that Yoshi's has made to your community. And um, there's so few venues like that for us to choose from. And I would really, really cross my fingers and hope that 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 time, May 11th, wasn't the last time I play Yoshi's. <laughs> yes, well, I hope not, too. Um, well, I have another guest uh, coming into the studio, and I would love to speak to you again, um, if, if that's cool. Well, you know, I um, I think it's just a matter of of, of making sure that um, I'm around to, yeah. to, to be on the phone, and, you know, we can do a cell phone. I can be anywhere in the world these days with that, mm-hmm. but uh, I'd be happy to. Okay. Much, much, much of a pleasure, and I'm sure we can work it out with my management and mm-hmm. Aphrasia Productions, and we can uh, certainly do this again. Okay, great. Well, have a wonderful performance tomorrow evening um, at the uh, Radisson um Yeah, the Culver Club. Uh-huh. The Culver Club, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that should be really, really lovely, a real unique, like you say, um, experience that people are not going to be able to uh, experience again for the in the near future, because you're not going to be around anymore. You're going to be going to New York. <laughs> Unless, of course, there's something in the wind that just breathes through, and I could be up in your uh, your uh, part of this uh, beautiful state of California before we know it. That would be really Stranger cool. things have happened. Right, certainly. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure talking with you, Wanda, and I'm sure that uh, we'll be able to do something again soon. All right, super. And I wanted to tell you that I really like the inclusion of America, the promise the beautiful. of ah. you know, America's Beautiful. I just wanted to tell you I really enjoyed that, uh, it, particularly following uh, the piece, um, well, not the following, but, uh, well, you actually did follow, you know, Free as a Child. Um, I sort of looked at um, Free as a Child and then America sort of. Yeah, move um, on. It was move yeah. on, the one about. Yeah, move on, yeah. Yeah. You know, America the Beautiful, this arrangement was, uh, I was hired to write an arrangement right after 9-11 for the demand for patriotic songs as they began to uh, become more important at that time. And and I wrote this arrangement in a minor key to reflect the incident, which is right on, I think it's, we're going to turn the corner in a minute and we'll be looking at another anniversary. Yes. But yeah, America the Beautiful was, was done this way. In a minor key, to uh, just kind of, it's kind of mark time, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm going like to play that. some. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's really lovely. Um, and so I'm going to play uh, some more of your songs um, during the uh, the next. Um, I have, the show goes until ten, so we're going to be playing some more of your music, even though. Well, thank you. Our interview is not going to. I'm be really good. glad you liked the, the the CD. I'm really really happy about it. It was a really tough decision to release this kind of product. And in the scheme of things, I mean, there's more to come, but I guess this needed to, to have its own little legs. So right. uh, thank you so much. I really, really sincerely appreciate your, your um, letting the public in on this one. Okay, you're welcome, and uh, good luck on everything. Oh, thank you, Wanda. All right, peace and blessings. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Ah, we're joined in the studio by Mary Monroe. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for hanging in there. <laughs> oh, no problem. I was enjoying uh, that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you know Carmen Lundy? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like she was saying, she's only been up. She's been up here like what was that? Three years ago. Oh. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I'm so happy that you're you're going to be um, reading your latest, uh, reading from your latest 
this evening at Marcus Books in Oakland, right? Uh, yeah, that that's right at six thirty. Yeah, God so, ain't um, blind. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I just got the book on Thursday, so you know mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to finish. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. I don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> but this woman is making some really bad choices, and her girlfriend is helping her make bad choices. Well, that's what happens in real life, unfortunately. Yeah, you you tell me that these these, <laughs> these characters, you know people. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yes. Yeah, like you know they're 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 fictional, but they're real too. And I'm like, goodness gracious. So who in the heck is Annette Good Davis? You know, she's been married ten years. Um, we find out. Uh, I don't know if it'll be giving away too much if if we if. I don't know. What do you think if if I share what um, her career was prior to when yeah, we you meet? Go ahead. You can go okay. ahead. Okay. Yeah, that that she was a former prostitute. <laughs> she's got a husband that she's in love with, and and then for a year they haven't they haven't been intimate, and she doesn't know what's going on. And 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 you describe her as being really attractive. She's um, uh, mid forties, and you know, really really beautiful. No one knows that. You know she's she's that age, and her daughter's about ten, so she's mm-hmm. an older mother, but you know mature, and she's a professional uh, career woman, and seems everything is going on except you know her love life. Yeah. And so she she <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm like why? I mean there's there's no communication, and I mean like she tries to talk to her husband, um, and and there's a disconnect there. Well, um. You you haven't got to the part to, that explains why he's ignoring her, and I don't want to give that away. <laughs> a lot of people yeah. already know it. Some reviewers have already uh, given that information out. But oh, uh, that would mess up the whole book. <laughs> well, really? I mean, he, oh, had a, really? he had a medical a medical condition. That was the well, reason. It wasn't that he didn't find her attractive, but you know, uh, we all make bad choices. She made bad choices, and, and he made bad choices not to tell her. I mean, a wife deserves to know. If there's a medical situation going on with the husband, but uh, yes. he made the decision not to tell her until he got it, uh, you know, corrected or to a, at a point where he was wasn't afraid to discuss it with her. But because he didn't, you know, let her know what was going on, she, look what she did. She went out and got involved with a con man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know when I mean I thought it might be a medical condition when mm-hmm. uh, when she called his shop because he's a barber and mm-hmm. has a shop and and. And the person, the employee that picked up the phone said that on Fridays, every Friday, that he had a doctor's appointment. And she mm-hmm. thought, you know, because she made up what she was doing every Thursday, that mm-hmm. he made up what, <laughs> what he was doing on Fridays. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, I did think what you just said, I thought, I think he might be sick. Like he might have cancer or yeah. something and he had uh-huh. chemotherapy or something uh-huh. on Fridays because, you know, he's of that age. You know, he could mm-hmm. have prostate cancer. You know, yeah. be diabetic. Right. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I didn't understand. Well, why? Did, I mean, because he had opportunities. Tell mm-hmm. her. You know what's going on, and and he would ask. He would like when she like that one one um, scene where you know she comes back from, from I think her her first episode in in you know in the. And the cheating are my husband <laughs> scenario, and and they're talking, and her back is to him, and she's pouring her heart out, saying, "Well, if you, you know, you, if you're into someone else, then then let me know, and I won't stand in your way." And and then he, and then she turns, her, well, she then she hears him snoring. Um, <laughs> so it's like, oh heck. 
You know, I, I think one of the one of the biggest problems in a relationship is the lack of communication. I mean, mm-hmm. so much, so many bad things that happened to her because of her affair could have been avoided had he communicated with her. And you know, she, had she communicated better with him too, because she gave up too easily. You know, he's. Mm-hmm. And he told the truth, you know, every Friday he's going to a doctor. That sounds a little bit suspicious to somebody who's also up to no good. Exactly. You know, it's easy for somebody like her or or somebody in her situation to think, yeah, that sounds, you know, like you said, every Thursday she's going bowling, quote, unquote, Mm -hmm. but it's to meet her (laughs) lover. So um, naturally she thinks that, oh, yeah, he's going to the doctor every Friday, so he's meeting up with uh, his his other woman or or something like that. It's got to be. Yes. And that's the way we've been programmed to think. I'm, I'm really sorry to say that, but it is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> where where do you get these God ugly, um, <laughs> God don't like this, God don't like that, or God ain't You know, this, my or... mother started that. When I was growing <laughs> up, every time I looked up, she was telling me, don't do that, God don't like ugly. And from there it went on, I do something else, God still don't like ugly. God was all was always in the mix. You know, mm-hmm. God ain't no fool. You know, be sitting in church and 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 goofing off, and she would take us and the other kids aside and say, "God ain't blind." It was all God was always in my business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. So that that's where all those that came from. My mother. I yeah, got a lot yeah. more coming up. <laughs> really? Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow! Because you've got a whole lot of books. Um, let's try to think. Which number is this one for this you? This is twelve. This is number twelve. Goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. And you got more? Oh, yeah. You know, since I write about my wow. experiences, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I will never run out of ideas. As a matter of fact, I get I have too many ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, ideas come at me from all, and not just from the people I know. I, I eavesdrop on airports, on public <laughs> transportation. I sit in restaurants with a notebook, mm-hmm. and I listen. I mean, if I hear something interesting, I said, oh, my God, that sounds like a great idea for a story (laughs) and i I just take it and run with it Mm -hmm. so So, interesting yep i I just you know i can't can't write the books fast enough Mm -hmm. and uh, my head's just full of ideas Mm. so um i since i haven't finished it does it have a happy ending um yeah i mean yes and no i mean (laughs) i have to leave it open because i the follow-up god ain't through yet you know it's oh. coming out uh, in a few months, okay. and so well, it it she learned a lesson. They, you know, the thing about my books, the theme is the same in all of them. Is and the theme is that what goes around comes around, or God don't like ugly. Mm-hmm. So she suffers because of what she did, and uh, other people, you know, suffered because of it. But uh, things do come together by the end of the story. But it's gonna lead to something else. <laughs> oh, okay. And and so the one you just mentioned, the the next title is that a continuation of yeah. It it'll, it'll pick up right up right where this one ends. Oh, God ain't through yet. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Hmm. So how do you turn them out so quickly? I mean, how long did it take know, you to write God Ain't Blind? Well, and and then you I, have the other ones already finished. Oh, I did, in, I did it in six weeks. I know that. Six weeks? Yeah. You wrote this book in six weeks? Mm -hmm. Let me explain. When I was growing up, I wrote under extreme conditions because I'm from an interesting background, you know. And I was, um, people didn't like the fact that they they thought I was uppity because, you know, I I grew up around illiterate people, ignorant people who sat on the porch for the most part. And I was the one who wanted to get off the porch and out of the bean field and this and that. And so because of that, 
I was criticized and even bullied by some of the other kids. Oh, you think you're too good to do be like us, blah, blah, blah. And so I wrote in secret for a long, long time. And it got to where I had to write really, learn how to write really, really fast because I, my time was so limited. Uh, like in church, I'd sneak to the bathroom with a notepad and throw together a few chapters and this and that. <laughs> and so, and I, and I uh, um, kind of honed that skill throughout my career because then I had to work. I had two kids and I was, you know, divorced with two small children. And I had a day job, so uh, my time was such so so limited i had to write on my commute bus and at work on my lunch hour so i learned how to write really really fast and so you know and that really comes in handy now even though i have like up to a year to do a book <laughs> i um i do it and get it over with so i can move on to something something else mm-hmm. and i usually already have the whole story in my head you know, by the time I sit down to write a book, and so it's just a matter of putting it on. But sometimes it feels like the books are just, the story is writing itself. And me, I'm just like the tool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because sometimes I, I I write something and I read it later, and I say, mm, I don't remember writing that. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Yeah, wow, that's great. Yeah, I want to let our listeners know that we actually um, have some books to give away. I've never had books to give away before, so it's oh. really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, mm-hmm. so I've got um, I've got three books to give away, and I thought I'd bring them by Marcus tonight, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you could autograph them for oh yeah the, uh, the people that are coming. They're going to blog um, mm-hmm. and and let me know that they <laughs> that they like they like a copy, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so um, just go to um. You know the uh, the radio show um, website and uh, leave me a message and uh, I will. Uh, the first three folks can have the books, or you can hit me up on Facebook. Um, they don't hit me on Twitter. <laughs> 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 yes, on Facebook or the blog. You know, uh, at Blog Talk Radio or yeah, I think those are the two best spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll see how that works out, Mary. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of cool. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could talk about. Um, I know um, when I last saw you, um, I'm trying to think, what was that book? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't in the God series. It was. Um, she had it coming. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Last year's book. <laughs> mhm. Right. Right. And you mentioned that there was one of your books was going to be made into a movie, and I was wondering. Which one is it uh, that was made into a film? Because I, I think I must have missed the film, so I need to go get it and see it. Oh, well, the film, it's still in production. It's The oh, Company okay. We Keep. Oh, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is an interesting uh, situation because uh, the original story, well, it was a screenplay. Roy Campanella wrote a screenplay. He's a director. Oh, director yeah. Yeah, he and used to he, be the station manager for KPFA. Uh, yeah, that's what I heard. Uh-huh. And I was just blown away when he contacted my publisher and uh, you know, wanted to know if they could talk to me about writing a, a novel based on a movie that he was going to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, what? <laughs> and uh, long story short, uh, he sent me the screenplay, and I uh, wrote wrote a, a novel based on, you know, the screenplay, and it was uh, released in March of this year, '09, doing very well. And uh, beautiful cover, you know, I don't know the model, but beautiful cover. <laughs> a lot of people thought it was me. <laughs> but uh, and uh, they're still working on the, the film. I don't know when 
uh, it'll be available, but I'm waiting to hear about that. But uh, ho- hopefully later this year, mm-hmm. the company okay. we keep. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, I'll definitely look for that. Um, so what if you could talk about um, sort of how you got into, um, uh, you know, getting your work published because, um, as you said, um, you your family, um, you didn't have a, I don't know, did you have a library in your home? What in our in our home? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me let me. Yeah, our library it was the Bible, and that was it. Because my family felt that well, everything you need to know is in the Bible. Because you know, I, I, they criticized me for spending wasting money on on books. You know, you're reading about people that that, that aren't, ain't even real. You know, because I read a lot of fiction. And I read, you know, we kept, you know, there was Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, and of course the the newspaper. That that was the only reading material uh, in our house when I was growing up, and I, I used to get so desperate that I would read the the Sears and Robot catalog, you know, the just the prices and the <laughs> descriptions of the clothing and so forth, and then I from there I'd move on to reading uh, the backs of the detergent boxes and so on and so forth, hmm. and uh, and then and, and earlier in my life we lived in the South and it was still segregated. We're talking the late fifties, so I wasn't really. I didn't have access to to libraries until we moved to Ohio, and that was like going to Neverland <laughs> because I spent a lot of time, you know, in library. I mean, we're talking hours at a time, and I would have to lie about where I'd been because, like I said, I was uh, criticized for being smart or trying to be smart. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, oh, I was visiting so-and-so. I was visiting this person at that time. And I often got in trouble for telling lies because, you know, my I got exposed a lot. But uh, it was really sad because I said I really hate to, you know, lie about being off with some other kids or, or somewhere when I was really in the library just lying on the floor reading, mm-hmm. and that wasn't normal, you know, by those standards. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was very hard. But now they they see that I'm serious. But even now, uh, most of my family members don't don't like to read, mm-hmm. and when I tell them that I'm working on a new book, they want to know why. You still doing that? <laughs> they'll they'll get it eventually, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where where in the south um, uh, is your family from? A uh, little rural area in Alabama, near Mobile. Okay. Uh, I have a lot of family members who are still there, still mm-hmm. sitting on the porch. <laughs> and uh, but I have a lot of family in Ohio now, and the God books are set in a fictional city in Ohio. And, okay. and you know the based on that city, the city that my family live in, that I grew up in, is very much like the little city that the God books take are set in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in Ohio, what what city? Um, it's Alliance, Ohio. Alliance. Okay. And, and near Cleveland, about an hour uh, from Cleveland, south of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So um, you moved there when you were still a little girl. Yeah. So I you grew up there. Pretty much. Yeah. Started okay. elementary school there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so tell us about I mean your story about how you got um you know published oh, and published? yeah and, and um, you know and 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 who um you know some of the writers you know how you got advice from these various oh, famous people. Yeah. Right. yeah, tell us about that and 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 um, how you were got encouragement from you know since your fam from other writers and how um, you went about that cuz um you you know you're very assertive. Oh, I had to be. <laughs> I I started sending out manuscripts when I was 12. I sold my first piece to, to Confession Magazine when I, was, when I was 15, but I really wanted to write for TV 
or novels and so I but I thought it was going to be a lot easier but I was in for a rude awakening because when I sent my first manuscript in for a novel I was literally sitting back waiting on a check but all I got was a rejection letter and to make a long story short it you know it was very rough cuz I didn't get I didn't get trained I didn't take any writing courses everything I know I I taught myself and thank God I was seemed to always be in the right place at the right time I Bumped into James uh, Baldwin, and he gave me some very useful advice about being being true to your vo- finding your voice and being true to your voice and persevering and so on and so forth. And then uh, Toni Morrison came out um, at Berkeley, and she uh, was lucky enough to have dinner with her. And she basically said, write about what you know. Mm-hmm. Don't try to imitate other authors, no matter how much you admire them. And that's what I was I was trying to imitate her. And uh, she said, uh, "Know your know your audience, know what they want, and stick with it, and then just just go for it." You know, she said, "If you want to make some changes in certain things, you, you know, you're you have the freedom with fiction to make changes and so on and so forth." But the the main thing that I I learned from uh, seasoned authors is to be true to yourself and to persevere, and always be willing to listen. You know, people who know more than you about writing can often give you advice that you might not like. You know, I had early in my career. I even had Danielle Steele give me advice that uh-huh. I didn't like. <laughs> oh. And uh, what do you know? I mean, what does she know? <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> I, well, she advised me to get an agent because at the time, this was before she, she was already famous at that point, but not as famous as she is now. And I went to see her, and she said, well, you, you'll need an agent. And I said, well, I don't need an agent. I don't want to give them percentage <laughs> of my money. And she said, well, you, you, for legal reasons, and she gave me a lot of other reasons. And I said, I don't want an agent. So for years and years I tried to sell a book on my own. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> she was right. I really needed an agent, and the right agent, too, because, an a, you know, there's there's different kinds of agents, and some of them are good with some types of authors and some are, are not. But I, I did a lot of trial and error. You know, I just sent letters to every agent listed in the guide to literary agents, even the ones who were only interested in science fiction. Um, I figured, well, why not? <laughs> but I, I hung in there, and even though I got criticized and abused by a lot of the agents, you know, they would send me really nasty uh, letters telling me, you'll never get published, or, you know, this is awful, and, you know, you need to forget about writing and go back to the cotton field, and this, 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 and this. And I said to myself, well, if I if I listen to all these people, I'm going to be stuck doing a day job that I loathe. You know, at the time I was a, a file clerk, you know, and people, I was getting abused at the job, the day job also. But, uh, and then one of my friends said to me, you could still be sending out manuscripts when you 40 years old. And I said, well, if I'm lucky, I'm going to be 40 years old someday anyway. So why not continue to send out manuscripts? And, you know, I'm glad that I didn't listen to people who kept saying, well, I'm sick of you being depressed and walking around with a long face and wondering how come you can't get published. Why don't you focus on getting hired at the post office or something? That wasn't where my heart was. It wasn't what I wanted. And it was took a very, very long time for me to get – the first book, The Upper Room, you know, got rejected 55 times. Really? And, mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> wow, that's a lot of rejections. That's a lot of rejections for one project, you know, and uh, took two years to sell it. But we finally did, and when we did sell it, or when my agent did sell it, it got fantastic reviews. But publisher didn't promote it, so it didn't sell. 
So they were not interested in giving me a second contract. So it took another 15 years and another several hundred. And I, I'm talking up around eight, 900, maybe it was, I think it was even 1,000 during that 15-year period uh-huh. uh, that I collected. And people think that I'm exaggerating, but I'm not exaggerating. And as a matter of fact, it's even more than that because I used to send out five and six manuscripts a day, and I would do that every day for a week. And we're talking 30, 40 manuscripts in a month. And I did that every month, and I did that for every year for 15 years, and, and even way before that. And so, believe me, it adds up. And I'd come home. There were days when I would receive four and five rejections in the same day. Hmm. <laughs> if oh, that doesn't hurt, I don't know what does. Wow. Yeah. Oh, but uh, I hung in there. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Well, that's yeah. Perseverance certainly pays off. That's for sure. And I and I presume having having a, a product that speaks to an audience that is loyal and and you know and and and, and you know and and also your product having the ability to to uh to attract new audiences. Yeah, yeah. you know, I'm I'm very happy. I have a a very loyal fan base, mm-hmm. but I and I and I get a lot of email and what's interesting is and, not, and you know, I have a target audience. My most of my characters are African American, but uh somehow I managed to cross over because I write about universal situations. You know, I get email from people and for some reason, people who are not black feel the, the the need to tell me, oh, I'm not black, but I can relate to your story. And I, I see that almost every day. I got an email from a woman who said, oh, I'm not black, I'm Native American, but I can relate to such, you know, she'll name the, name the character Annette in the God books. Right. And uh, the other day I got one from a, a white man. He goes, I'm a white male, and I usually don't um, read books by uh, African-American authors, especially women, but his girlfriend uh, a, a, a black coworker had got his girlfriend to read one of my books, and she liked it so much she got him to read it. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, it's interesting and amazing how you eventually reach <laughs> other uh, people. And he goes, now I he said I went out and got some more of your books, and I'll be reading everything you write now. So that's good. That made me feel really good. Right, that's awesome. Well, I want to let our audience know that we're speaking to Mary Monroe and her latest book, uh, New York Times best-selling author Mary Monroe, by mm-hmm. the way. And her best-selling, uh, her her latest release um, is God Ain't Blind, and she's going to be in Oakland uh, this evening uh, at Marcus Books. Uh, I think it's thirty nine hundred Martin Luther King Jr. Way, yeah. uh, near Fortieth Street. And then you're going to be at Alexander Books also. When is that one? Um, when is that one? I got to look. I think on that's. I think that's next week. Um, yeah, I think it is. They're, they're still working on my schedule, but I think it's uh, next Tuesday, the twenty fifth. Yeah. Right, but but people can visit your website. You have a wonderful website. Oh, um, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they can email really. me. I, I answer all my emails. Right, that's what I was reading. It's like you mm-hmm. write you write books in you know six weeks, and <laughs> you answer all your email. You are truly you know a writer's writer. You love to write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your your website. I mean, your website is it Mary Monroe um, dot org dot com dot org dot org. Mm-hmm. Okay. I tried to get dot com, but uh, somebody else already had that. Yeah. <laughs> There's another Mary Monroe, Mary Alice Monroe. Mm-hmm. And you know the interesting thing is that my middle name is also Alice. Ah. And people confuse us all the time. She, uh, a black book club invited her to be their guest of honor and mm-hmm. thinking it was me, and she showed up. Right. And 
I, you know, I went to do a book signing, and they have her books on the table for me to sign. <laughs> I get her email. <laughs> oh my! Well, well, Mary Monroe, the one we're speaking to, um, without the middle name, since we don't want you to get confused. Mm-hmm. Her email is author author five four zero nine at aol dot com. Mm-hmm. So MaryMonroe.org, and she'll be at Marcus Books tonight, and you can meet the author. She's you're just such a warm, um, engaging person. It's just it was really mm-hmm. wonderful meeting you um, when you were here um, at um, Barnes and Nobles in Jack London Square. That was a really wonderful, oh, intimate affair. Fun. <laughs> yeah, that was very nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I will see you this evening. Okay. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, if you want a book, you will let me know on Facebook, or you will. You know, blog me here at Blog Talk Radio. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you take good care. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Uh, We are joined in the studio. Uh, Let's see. Um, Who is joining me in the studio? Is this um, Shaka or Suni or uh, Nadra? Okay, so we got Nadra. Who else is in the studio? Shaka. Shaka. Oh, excellent, excellent. Welcome, welcome. So uh, we have Shaka Athanen, and who has a program planned for this afternoon going into the evening, and Nadra Foster, um, a, a uh, host, uh, radio personality, and also an activist. And we're going to talk about um, George Jackson, Comrade George Jackson, and Black August. So um, since my Introductions are so short. Uh, Shaka, if you want to give us some more background on yourself, and Nadra, you also. Uh, Nadra, uh, yesterday was the anniversary of this horror, horrible um, beating uh, that she received at the hands of the Berkeley Police Department at KPFA a year ago yesterday, the 20th of August. And um, Nadra was, um, was honored for her perseverance at uh, the um, Cynthia McKinney um, what was the name of the tour, Nadra? Victory Tour. What's it called? Triumph. Is it Triumph? Triumph, it's Triumph Tour. Yeah, Triumph yeah. Tour. Right, right. Yeah, and it was also a fundraiser for the San Francisco Bayview newspaper, which is really cool. But um, maybe, um, Shaka, would you like to start? And you could talk about, you know, um, you know okay. who George Jackson is and, and why, you know, it's, we want to commemorate um, his, uh, you know, the anniversary of his killing um, at San Quentin. Okay, I'm uh first of all I'm 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 chairman of Black August Organizing Committee. Oh. Um it's um it's an organization we formed to um to shine a spotlight on what's going on, the atrocities that are happening inside the prison system to uh mainly African American inmates. Uh it comes out of a time when um with George Jackson, Jonathan Jackson, Katari Galden, we it it was um a really black time for us. That's why we chose the concept, the name Black August. And with what's going on right now in prison with Mexican and African fighting and killing one another, these are these are the types of things that George Jackson stood against, okay, when in, in dealing with raising the consciousness of the prisoner and, and changing the mentality of that criminal behavior and the racist behavior and and getting people to understand that it was the administration that was orchestrating these these uh violent confrontations and carrying on right now there are 11 dead in the uh, uh California prisons because of of us fighting us 
in, so to speak. And all this being orchestrated by the prison administration. So we today commemorate the memory of, of George Jackson because of the things that he stood for. And one of those things being, um, like I say, getting away from the racist behavior, getting away from uh, being manipulated and, and, and rising up above just being a parasite and, and trying to be something progressive for your people, your community, your nation, your world. Uh, oh, yes. Well, I mean, I would say that being much younger than Shaka, being a child, I would say, of uh, this generation of visionaries, I would feel that those are the um, teachings that have um, allowed me to live a prosperous life away from those traps and poisons as far as racist behavior and the basic mainstream setup for tracking um our, our youth and myself as a youth at that time, and I would say that those teachings have led me to, I feel, live a very beautiful life, embracing other people and, and living a life filled with righteousness and dignity and not one in pursuit of money at all means, trampling over um, humane values and spiritual values. So I would say that George Jackson, as well as the teachings of the Black Panther Party, um, and also other teachings, but I say as a child growing up that I am a child of the Black Panther Party. I was born in 1975, actually, you know, sometime after um, uh, my beloved George's assassination. But just being raised, he was always a spirit that was alive in um, the community at that time and um, definitely a very ancestral power, as I would speak on our African traditions, who, you know, is really still pushing for us to move forward and to go for the higher values of liberating our lives as we live today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you, um, either one of you all know this piece um, titled History is a Weapon, George Jackson, Black Revolutionary by Walter uh, Rodney? Yes. Yes, you know, that's very powerful yeah. piece. Yes. Yeah, I was going to read a, maybe a couple of paragraphs of it. Um, uh says, to most readers um, in this continent, Starred of authentic information by the imperialist news agencies, the name of George Jackson is either unfamiliar or just a name. The powers that be in the United States put forward the official version that George Jackson was a dangerous criminal kept in maximum security in America's toughest jails and still capable of killing a guard at Soledad Prison. They say that he himself was killed attempting escape this year in August. Official versions given by the United States of everything from the Bay of Pigs in Cuba to the Bay of Tonkin in Vietnam have the common characteristic of standing truth on its head. George Jackson was jailed ostensibly for stealing $70. He was given a sentence of one year to life because he was black, and he was kept incarcerated for years under the most dehumanizing conditions because he discovered that blackness need not be a badge of servility, but rather could be a banner of uncompromising revolutionary struggle. He was murdered because he was doing too much to pass this attitude on to fellow prisoners. George Jackson was was a political prisoner and a black freedom fighter. He died at the hands of the enemy. Once it is made known that George Jackson was a black revolutionary in the white man's jails, at least one point is established, since we are familiar with the fact that a significant proportion of African nationalist leaders graduated from colonialist prisons and right now in the jails of South Africa hold captive some of the best of our brothers in that part of the continent. 
So this is pre-Nelson Nelson Mandela. I'm going to skip ahead. Um, within this prison, black life is cheap, so it should be no surprise that George Jackson was murdered by San Quentin prison authorities who are responsible to America's chief prison warden, and at that time was Richard Nixon. What remains is to go beyond the generalities and to understand the most significant elements attached to George Jackson's life and death. Um, when he was killed in August this year, it's 1971, George Jackson was 29 years of age and had spent the last 15, correction, 11 years behind bars, seven of these in special isolation. As he himself put it, he was from the lumpen. Um, could you, um, I'm not going to read the rest of this, um, and it, I actually, it's online, uh, historyisaweapon.com, so mm -hmm. you can uh, look it up, those who are yeah. interested in reading it. It is a really beautiful piece. Um, could you all talk about um, George Jackson's um, writings and, and also his influence, um, his positive influence around literacy and education, um, political education, um, uh, you know, while he was incarcerated? Well, um, what a lot of people really don't understand, they they tend to think of George Jackson as um, an activist, okay, and just a um, uh, militant, uh, um, you know, violent or, or what have you. But those of us that were inside, that were locked down, uh, you know, fighting those battles, being beaten by the axe handles and all that kind of thing, uh, understood a different George Jackson. This is the George Jackson that sat in the bleachers on the yard and taught people how to survive in the wilderness or, or instructed people in uh, medical techniques of, of uh, you know, uh, healing and, you know, what plants to eat and all that kind of stuff. Those are the things that people don't, the mainstream doesn't get out of his writings or uh, from conversations with people, and, and they really need to explore that area because that was what inspired us to rise above who we were as when we went when we went into prison we were negroes and we rose to become africans inside and those are the things that inspired us it wasn't the militant uh the you know the revolutionary rhetoric it was the person and what people on the street called the George Jackson phenomenon well, it encompassed a whole range of, of uh, occasional uh, choices and, and, and uh, backgrounds and stuff because George Jackson studied the world, okay? He didn't just confine himself to the teachings of Mao and, you know, uh, Marx or Lenin or, or uh, Ho Chi Minh or, or whoever. He studied everything, and he was versed on everything. This is a brother who never raised his voice. Okay, like he was portrayed in some in these movies and different things and hollering at people and stuff. This is someone who, when he talked, everybody listened. Everybody paid attention because he had something to say. And he would query people and get them to rise to the occasion themselves and come to the answers and the conclusions out of, out of their own selves. So those are the things that inspired us. And just like this young sister that's on the phone, uh, I've heard of, I've heard about the tyranny that she's suffering down there at KPSA. I've heard of her struggle for a while now, and I really, I really and truly support her in her efforts. But this is the this is the type of individual that George Jackson, their comrade, endeavored to 
uh, uh, to make the wave of the future. So. Okay. Um, oh, thank you so much, Shaka. <laughs> Quite well. Um, I would just always just add on to what you're saying. It really does feel like the elder speaks and then the youth cannot add on. Is that I feel that George Jackson's teachings have been made so secret and his personality has been kept away from the very population who goes to prison and claims to be so thug life, Max and Dons and bosses. This kind of mentality would not be so prevalent in our community if we actually were able to make so popular the teachings of George Jackson because he did truly, I remember as a child, I was inspired to study the world and that was the kind of spirit that I felt even at five years old to say that um, he was a great intellectual and, and even in his passing, I still was able, and in my friends and those of us who were growing up at the time, were still able to get the idea that to be free, we really had to educate ourselves and to not become something stereotypical, to not fall into the trappings of the prescribed street life, which unfortunately is so very popular now, right, right now, and that even is acceptable that, you know, when I was coming up, it was not acceptable just to call yourself a pimp and to think that you had made it somewhere, but to we knew that, that you were falling right into a trap. So I would just say that George Jackson's teachings are just so ever important right this very day, especially to inspire our young men and women to step out of the traps and start to really truly be alive and be themselves and know the world. Yeah, I just want to let you know that we've been joined by uh, Keelun Yasha, who All is right. a friend of George Hey, Keelun. Yeah. Hey, Hi, sir. Shaka. Hi, Nadra. Hey, Hi, Wanda. Uh, and right. then Sundi, Sundi Yad or Sundi uh, Tate is is on the air too. And and uh, and Sundi um, Sundi uh, he uh, actually um, was there when uh, Comrade George um, was killed. Um, so we're talking about uh, Comrade George and um, and Shaka explained uh, about Black August. You know, sort of where where that this this uh, commemoration comes from. And uh, so yeah, so join on in, um, both of you. Well, I'll let Sundi go first. Okay, Sundi, why don't you tell us about that day um, in 1971? Uh, 1971. Mm-hmm. Hey, awesome. greetings, first of all, to everybody. Greetings. Right. Uh, oh, 1971 is the day that Comrade G was uh, assassinated, set up, and murdered on the in front of the Justin Center, in front of 4A. On that particular day, uh, guards said that George uh, somehow hit a 9mm underneath a wig, so-called wig that was on top of his head, you know, and that he walked from the visiting room back to the adjustment center without it dislodging and that in the course of being searched one of the guards noticed something in his hair. Uh, I have never believed that story. I do know that at some point George was able to gain control of the adjustment center 
subdue the guards and release everyone from themselves, whoever wanted to come out. I was one of the people among 25 others who chose to come out of their cell at that particular time. George, at some point, fled the adjustment center along with Johnny Spain. George was shot. He went down and immediately got back up and threw himself in the direction of the bushes by the chapel there in front of 4A. George, contrary to what prison officials said about how he was killed, they claimed that he was running, and as he was running, he was shot in the back in the heel, and that as he fell forward, the bullet, bullet that hit his back exited his brain. Number one, if that was the case, Comrade would never have been able to get up after he had went down and throw himself in a completely different direction into the bushes. So in my own mind, I personally know that George was not killed, was not murdered the way they claim he was murdered. In fact, they don't even recognize it as a murder. They recognize it as justifiable homicide. But the brother was actually murdered at some point after he was already wounded and lying on the ground. So I could not see the shot that took his life. But, you know, the pigs again got away with his murder. You know, his mother said they murdered her son, and she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. That's basically uh, what I have to say about that day. On that day, we was, you know, the prison prisoners were brutally beaten in the adjustment center chained up for hours, hog-tied with chains, stripped naked, forced to lie on the grass, uh, forced to run through a gauntlet, a prison guard with clubs, beat as they ran through that gauntlet, made to crawl on their hands and elbows, on their elbows and knees, Call all kind of racial terms. Call all kind of niggas. There was even some black guards that stood around while this was going on. Long live the memory of Comrade G. May his memory forever live in the hearts and minds of people. He was a revolutionary like Jake Barrow. Dedicated to the people dedicated to uplifting
That's all I have to say. Keila? Yes. Hi, Wanda. Yes, I, I really appreciate uh, Sundi's uh, comments uh, about our comrade brother. Um, Sundi loved George uh, like I did, and um, um, he's a great loss. He's just a tremendous loss. And I've been uh, perusing his books, um, Blood in My Eye and Soledad Brother, and uh, it's it's just absolutely amazing how even Soledad Brother, um, which was a bestseller in 1970, is so pertinent to what's going on today. And if I may read something briefly, uh, he's talking about running dogs, for example. The government buys and trains these running dogs very carefully and sends them scrambling, tails and all, outward to represent the establishment. Whole kennels are sent to the African nations on the ambassadorial level on the supposition that the people of these nations will be able to relate better to a black face. <laughs> okay? <laughs> how <laughs> how pertinent to today is that? Okay? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, and then in another instance he says, um, this is page 193 in the original Soledad uh, Brother. The cultural links to the established capitalist society have been a lot closer than we like to admit. In the area of culture, I am using this word in a narrow sense out of necessity, we are bonded to the fascist society by chains that have strangled our intellect, scrambled our wits, and sent us stumbling backward in a wild, disorganized retreat from reality. We don't want their culture. We don't want a piece of that pie. It's rotten, putrid repulsive to all the senses why are we rushing to board a sinking ship when we join hands with the established fascist scum in any way it gives the people of the world the righteous people of the congo tanzania sudan of cuba china vietnam etc the legitimate right to hate us too and we must add iraq afghanistan <laughs> haiti and uh and honduras Okay, today, okay? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, he he was this uh, incredibly uh, brilliant, a brilliant political analyst and um, uh, had great courage to go with it. I mean, he he put mind and body together uh, to form the new man uh, in an incredible way. he could do a thousand fingertip push-ups a day, and and at the same time, uh, when they cleaned out his cell um, after they murdered him, uh, they found 99 books covering the history of the world. Uh, and in Blood in My Eye, for example, he says, "quote The fascists already have power. The point is that some way must be found to expose them and combat them. An electoral choice of ten different fascists." is like choosing which way one wishes to die. The holder of so-called high public office is always merely an extension of the hated ruling corporate class. It is to our benefit that this person be openly hostile, despotic, unreasoning. We are not living in a nation where left-wing parties hold 80 out of 200 seats in a congressional body or even 8 out of 200. 
This is a huge nation dominated by the most reactionary and violent ruling class in the history of the world, where the majority of the people just simply cannot understand that they are existing on the misery and discomfort of the world. They have been hypnotized into believing that criticism of the expansionist policies of imperialism is really isolationist or injurious to both the USA and the world. Okay? That's blood in my eye. <laughs> blood in my eye and, and Soledad Brother, in my humble opinion, is, is, is are just must-reads for anyone who really wants to engage in revolutionary um, theory and practice. And Shaka, you have something planned today. Um, uh, normally, there there are big events, and there are big events happening uh, throughout the country uh, this month. And you have something planned for today. Why don't you tell our audience um, what what you have planned with regards to the uh, the correspondence writing? Okay, this this month, in um, instead of doing a big event with a lot of people coming and listening to people speak and and educating workshops and all that. We're trying to be uh, more practical about supplies and stuff because right now, as in every year when Black August comes around, uh, folks inside are being persecuted. Uh, this year is the 30th anniversary, so they are really going through it. That's another reason for this war that's going on in there. And so we're asking people to come by here at um, after 3 o'clock and bring uh, books of stamps, stamped envelopes, legal tablets, and we're going to do a mailing and just flood the prison system with mail today. You know, make sure that we send supplies in, especially to uh, the legal minds like Paul Red and and uh, Willie uh, Willie Thomas and George Rounds and Rochelle McGee and all, and make sure that they have supplies so that they can continue to fight this struggle. But right now. We're asking people to be participants and and to come together and just do this. This is something practical that people can really put their hands on doing instead of just coming to an event and then going home. This is something when they leave today, they know they did something. You know? right. Don't don't leave out Ugo Pinnell. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No, yes. we're, write, we're writing everybody. Well, we're sending supplies to... Uh, the people that are fighting those legal uh, cases in the court to try to free Hugo, to try to free uh, all these other folks that are the longest-held prisoners in there. This is what we're concentrating on today in California. We're doing the same thing across the country. Right, yeah. Um, so tell us who Hugo Pinnell is. Hugo Pinnell is Yogi. The last remaining member of the San Quentin Six who, who remained in prison after over forty something years. He went in when he was like twenty. He's not sixty-five years old. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And he recently was given fifteen years after coming to the board with over twenty-something years clean. He have never been convicted of a murder. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Shaka, can you tell people where where um, the event is? Six thirty nine 54th Street, okay. uh, North Oakland. The cross street is Shattuck. Okay. And we're starting uh, around three o'clock. 
let me see. I think Kilo got knocked off. No, I'm, I'm back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I All got right. this new phone, and I accidentally hit a wrong button. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm going to go out with um, a piece um, by, uh, i trying to think, what is the name of this group? It's uh, Actually, I played um, this piece by Bob Dylan about George Jackson. I have another piece. Um, I think it's, I'm trying to think. Uh, Steel Pulse? Yeah, Steel Pulse. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right, um, <laughs> Kilo, do you want to say something about Yogi? Um, cause I know he oh, yes, play. yes. I just got a letter from him yesterday. Um, he's hanging in there, but he can't even. They, they, he told me yesterday that they're not even getting fruit juices and stuff like that anymore. They've eliminated some of the, you know, and he's a vegetarian, but they won't give him a vegetarian diet, so he's really in trouble on food tip. And um, he's he's hanging tough, but it, you know he's been in in shoe for 19 years in solitary for nearly 40. So it's it, it, please write to him, and you can go to ugopinel dot org www.hugopinell.org hugopinell.org to get more information on how to his address has stayed the same so his address can be found on that website please send send him love he needs it he needs all the company you can give him okay all right well i've got another guest coming into the studio and i'm going to have to play um the uh the piece by still post after um, you all leave the air, but um, definitely um, we need to, uh, to to stay in touch with our um, brothers and sisters that are behind bars. And it's really wonderful, um, Shaka, that um, you know you're going to be um, you know writing letters. And uh, and uh, Wanda, can I just plug the program this evening because oh, yes, it's going to focus on George. Oh, super. Okay, yes. Yeah, freedom is a constant struggle. 7:30 p.m. www.accessf dot org. That's access San Francisco basically with one less S. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so that'll be on tonight at seven thirty and Sundi will be on along with Shabaka. Oh, oh that's wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. And um uh Cynthia McKinney's in town and she's gonna be at the Black Dot uh tonight in West Oakland. Um and Naja, do you have anything coming up or any way people can support you in your legal battle? Yeah. Tonight we're having a Harmony Festival at the Big Sip Cafe at 2700 Park Boulevard. It's the Black August celebration in honor of George Jackson. And we just wanted to come together as a community and make the right vibration. So we're just asking the community to come out with your poetry, your music, your song, family and children are invited. And we just make beautiful music. We just chant Babylon down with all kind of Old school and new school, positive chance, and it's a wonderful experience. That's 2700 Park Boulevard, the Big Ship Cafe. Okay, cool. All right, well, thank you um, all so much for joining us today to remember um, the transition, the murder of, of one of our freedom fighters, and, uh, you know, may he give inspiration to, you know, to this generation and future generations. All power to the people. Vince Ramos, long live the gorilla. Long live the gorilla. All power to the people. Long live the gorilla. Long live the gorillas. <laughs> Peace and blessings, you all. Thank you, Wanda. Okay. Uh. <laughs> oh, thanks for hanging in there. Uh. Hey, hey, Wanda. Hey. Leo. Oh, hey, Leo. I thought I was going to be speaking to Jennifer. You're on the air, Leo. So Leo's with, with uh, Larson Associates. <laughs> And they are representing the film Pressure Cooker. Okay, so here she is. It opens today. 
Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Jennifer uh, Grossman is um, uh, director of a new film, Pressure Cooker, which um, opens today in San Francisco um, in the Bay Area, I believe. Um, and you are in town, so you're going to be at some of the screenings? Yes. Uh, Mark Becker, line co-director, and I are both going to be at the Lumiere tonight for Q&As at the 7 o'clock and the 9.20 p.m. shows, and then tomorrow at the Lumiere at 2.15, and in Berkeley at the Shattuck Theater at the 7.05, and I think 9.20 tomorrow night as well. Um, and then we also open in San Rafael. Oh, nice, nice. Excellent. Um, Pressure Cooker um, follows the lives of three teenagers dreaming of their future success as chefs. Mm-hmm. But to achieve their dreams, they must first survive and excel in the highly successful culinary arts program of the hard-charging Mrs. Stevenson, who has mentored dozens of her students to win over $3 million in college scholarships over the years. As Mrs. Stevenson says, everyone has a story, and Tyree, uh, Automata, and Erica have really compelling ones. Each must overcome extraordinary long odds. Uh, Long odds uh, <laughs> as they contemplate the pock marked path of the real world that lies before them. This takes place in um, Philadelphia uh, at a high school there. They learn to earn success through the discipline, drive, and commitment Mrs. Stevenson instills in them. The classroom relationship between them soon evolves into much more than that. The unit that forms is truly a family with Mrs. Stevenson as the take no prisoners but ultimately loving taskmaster. And uh, Jennifer, I'm going to play um, the opening, okay? Okay, great. My name is Mrs. Stephenson. This is culinary arts class. Some of you will be here. Some of you will not remain here. heard of me. Raise your hand high. <laughs> Everything you heard is true, only it's worse than that. Whatever you heard, it's 500 times worse. <laughs> Eleven of our seniors last year made three-fourths of a million dollars in scholarships. That's a lot of money. $186,300. Three-fourths of a million. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I love that drum roll. Um, (laughs) So Jennifer um, was honored with the 2005 uh, Best Producer Award at the Columbia University Film Festival and the Arthur Krim Memorial Award in 2004, and most recently she co-produced uh, Eric Mendelssohn's narrative feature Three Backyards in 2009. And Pressure Cooker is your de- uh, director directorial de- debut, and then your co-director Mark uh, Becker produces, directs, shoots, and edits documentaries in New York, and uh, and he's made. Um, uh, films like Romantico, mm-hmm. which premiered at Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize and received two Independent Spirit Award nominations. 
Um, but this particular uh, film, Brush Pressure Cooker, is like you all have like a lot of awards, special jury <laughs> prize in LA Film Festival, Audience Award at Aspen, Editing Honorable Mention. What's that? Well, what? A, I mean, like Audience Award, Portland Best Documentary, Philadelphia Sin Fest, Best Documentary, Honorable Mention, Nashville Audience Award, and Berkshire International. So, I mean, what a way to come out as a director, right? It's been great. We had a wonderful <laughs> film festival run uh, last year, and mm-hmm. um, audiences really seemed to love the film, which was great. And um, and now we've been having sort of good success as we've opened. We've opened already in New York and L.A. and Philadelphia and D.C. and other places around the country. But so San Francisco is our last big opening, and we're very excited to be here. Okay, cool, cool. So how did you, um, you know, how did you um, meet... Uh, this wonderful teacher, Wilma Stevenson, um, at Frankwood High School. I mean, how did you I know heard... about this story? <laughs> She's an amazing woman, and she, um, for the last number of years, has always done this well at the at the competition run by the Careers Through Culinary Arts Program, a nonprofit that um, my father, Richard, founded about 20 years ago. Oh. And so I had I had been um, actually filming a little bit in New York with some kids who who uh, work with the program there and kept hearing both from him and other people in the program and other teachers about this one particular teacher in Philadelphia, uh, Wilma Stephenson, and so decided we decided we wanted to go down and meet her and, you know, spent three hours talking to her about education and public high school, and she's been at Frankfurt for 40 years, and she was so passionate about teaching and her kids and clearly loved them so much and um that combined with the fact that we knew she really trained her kids we were sort of curious about her methods and um thought there would be a good story in her classroom and we there was (laughs) so that's how we found her and we were very lucky with her and the kids were you know are amazing amazing people and great characters for a documentary so yeah. So tell us, tell my audience about about the uh, the children um, who you profile, and and um, it's really you know wonderful you know getting to know them. You know Erica, Tyree, and Fatumata, who mm-hmm. is, uh, I mean, goodness gracious, her story you know of coming from from Africa. Um, was she from from Mali? She's from Mali. Right. Right. Yeah. And and all the students. Um, you know, are doing so well uh, academically also. And I was really impressed with um, with Tyree, you know, being uh, a football player yeah. and, and, and a chef. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, so we, we picked the kids pretty early on. Um, <clears throat> we interviewed, you know, or tried to interview all 13. That's a little tricky with seniors in high school. Some of them show up and some of them don't. So that's sort of helps inform, because with the documentary, you're looking for both access and who seems like to have a good character with a great story. And so we sort of picked up on Erica right away, knowing a little bit about her from Wilma. And then also she's just so charismatic and charming and great on camera. And just she's really, she was excited about the prospect of being in a documentary. Her family was, was interested. So that made her a natural as our first sort of, pick as a main character and then um Tyree also you know everyone looks up to him at school we like the dichotomy of the football versus the culinary and he too is very very funny and bright and great on camera and then Fatumata we actually met the first time we met Wilma because they were already pretty close and she was there after school with her when we came to interview Wilma and um 
So I heard a little bit about her story about, you know, coming from Africa and um, not being in touch with her mother, and that was obviously very compelling. But we, it was more when we met her and got to spend time with her, She, even though she was very shy in the beginning, there was something, this, like, inner strength you could sort of see in her. And um, so we spent a lot of time with Fatumata off camera getting to know her, and, um, you know, she becomes really one of the, the backbone of the film, I think, because her story is... Um, so emotional. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, where are where are these students now? Because I I know I mean it was really exciting. You know, we go in the classroom and we watch them. You know, like uh, Tyree. You know, he cuts his finger <laughs> and they all laugh at him. And then other kids, you know, they make these tasty um, crepes, but then they it doesn't look good. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, and um, and then you know the bake sale in the school, and you know their first big uh, banquet where they're, you know, they have different students in charge of different aspects like the hostess and the, you know, the folks that are cooking and you know all that kind of stuff. I mean, you all were everywhere. How many cameras did you have? We were. We actually at the school we only had one camera. Um, We on the on the large. The larger days, like the football game or the cheerleading competition or the culinary competitions and awards, we had two cameras. But um, the kitchen and the school, you couldn't really fit more than one camera in there. Um, We already had to be so careful, you know, having the camera and one sound person and myself. So um, it was was definitely, there was no more room for for another camera. (laughs) Yeah, but it was just, I mean, the camera... Camera never got in the way either. How did, how did we definitely uh, we tried to stay out of the way. We stayed as far away from Wilma as we could. Um, Mark was did a lot of the shooting, and oh. and he would say, you know, we just stayed on the other side of the classroom. Um, and Wilma actually, you know, she she says this in Q and A sessions, but she uh, yelled at us more than the kids. So <laughs> we uh, we sympathized with the kids, and you know. We definitely had the um, the full experience of being in her class, but we we spent the whole year down there. So that, you know, we got lots of footage from different parts of the year and and different classrooms and different extracurriculars. So that you know, gave us sort of a wealth of of material when we were editing. Mhm. Yeah. 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 These I really like. You know, when they're doing their, I guess their. Um, preparing for their their college application and they have mm-hmm. to, well actually I think it's sort of like a twofold they're they're doing their uh personal essays mm-hmm. and and I think they're also preparing for their 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 um application process for college or university yeah. and and they're you know they're telling their stories I think you do that really well they're writing and then they're telling their stories you just that's nice Thanks. and and then and then um uh the Stevens Stevens is it Stevenson? It's Stephenson, actually. Stephenson, sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah, Stephenson. When when she tells him her story, so I was you like, give us her backstory, uh, uh-huh. and um, yeah, and how she came to to Philadelphia, and then also if you could, in you know, within that that uh, quite answer, mm-hmm. tell us about you know what does it look like in Northeast Philly? Um, you know, you do uh, a lot of pans of of the neighborhoods where the children live. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, Wilma actually got her her undergraduate degree, I think, from, I believe it's Cheney University, um, in home economics and a minor in science. And then she went on to, to get a few master's degrees in 
child psychology and computer science and other things. So she has is always a lifelong, you know, educator and student and interested in just learning more and more. And she's been teaching at Frankfurt for 40 years and started out doing sort of child psychology and care and then moved into computer science and then um, was working running the travel and tourism program which um, was part of this academy and then uh, that culinary arts was in. And in the middle of the year, about 10 years ago, the culinary arts teacher had to leave suddenly. And so the principal asked Wilma if she could take over culinary arts also. So she, that year she taught five culinary arts classes and five uh, travel and tourism <laughs> classes. So it was a busy year. And then after that she wanted to just go back to travel and tourism, but she was so successful at culinary that her principal closed down the travel and tourism department so that she could focus on culinary. Oh, so she's wow. been there and been doing culinary for about 10 years. Um, and she's also, it's its not really mentioned in the film, but she's also the cheerleading coach. And she they've won the last eight years in a row as well. <laughs> um, and then so Frankfurt, is in, uh, Frankfurt High School is in Frankfurt in northeast Philly. And um, there's sort of two parts of Frankfurt and uh, where actually Fatimata, Eric, and Dudley all live um, sort of on one side where, um, you know, it's lots of row houses and and um, and sort of nice um, lower middle class neighborhoods. And, um, and then the other side sort of under the L um, where, you know, a lot of the kids from school live is certainly, you know, a little more depressed and used to be a really bustling, as the, the coach tells us, used to be a really bustling area, but sort of with the advent of, you know, suburban sprawl and, and mini malls and stuff has sort of, you know, all the big stores have kind of moved out of um, the main drag area in Frankfurt, and so, you know, there are lots of stores for rents and things like that. So it's definitely... Um, you know, I I wouldn't say it's it's you know there are worse areas I think in Philly in terms of crime and stuff, but it certainly has its share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm gonna play something else. Um, one of the others you sent me. Let's see, pressure cooker. I think you maybe um, let's see, maybe I'll play the one um, the uh, the the uh, the crepes one. Okay, great. Why am I working with food? 
Why wouldn't I work with food? Let's just get out. It's useless. <laughs> you, um, in, in the uh, director's statement, you write that, um, uh, teacher, uh, Wilma's, uh, kitchen, uh, Stephenson, Mrs. Stephenson's kitchen was a loud, chaotic, and oddly nurturing home base for these kids replete with discipline and dysfunction. And and I was just thinking about when uh, Tyree brought his sister mm-hmm. to school with him, and he was making some kind of a dessert, and uh, and the then uh-huh. uh, what was he making? Uh, crabs with pastry cream oh, and chocolate. Yeah, sauce. right, right. And then <laughs> and then his teacher found out that he hadn't fed his sister breakfast. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes. Tyree's sister is hilarious and adorable. I mean, one of she's so great. We were so lucky to find her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so she's just loving it, having the dessert, so she's so give it to her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, he's the eldest of, of how many children? Uh, he has um, Tiana's his youngest sister, and then there is another sister in between them. So I think mm-hmm. it's three of them. Right. There might be another one or two not living at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about uh, you know your 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 home visits and mm-hmm. uh, and telling the story of the family. Like for instance, um, in in this particular in Tyree's family, you know you interview his mother, and she's talking about he he says that his mother she. Um, I don't know if she's disabled, but I think she might be disabled, but I'm not certain. But she, you know, wants him to be successful so that, you know, he can help his family. Right. And, and he, he's not shying away from that. He wants to be successful so he can help his family, too. Right. It's yeah. definitely a female-centric household. Um, uh-huh. And she, you know, it's also it's all girls. And then lots of um, women around. And she actually, she's not disabled. She actually works oh. two jobs. <laughs> so oh, okay. I think that's why she wants. She wants someone to take care of her sometime later, and so, um, and but Dudley knows that they're they're all very close, um, and so and he ends up you know taking care of his sisters a little bit since his mom is working you know so many hours. So, mm-hmm. um, but he's I I feel like having grown up with so many women has has made him into a great guy. <laughs> he's, he's very sensitive to that, and um, and he's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really, really cute. He's got a really nice personality. He says that he, um, you know, when he's, you know, on the field, because, you know, his football coach knows that he's also, you know, in the culinary arts program. And so when his teacher shows up on the on the, on the the uh, field, you know, during practice, you uh-huh. know, it's like she can get him off to measure him for a dress <laughs> shirt and a tie. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he says that one of his friends um you know was drafted and then he or was was going to be drafted and he got injured mm-hmm. and that and all he had to rely on you know insofar as his his career options were was sports mm-hmm. and he said well now you know I got to like sort of diversify my portfolio here and that's why I'm doing you know culinary arts and I'm good at it and you know that's that could be a sure thing and um you know like in the uh in the cart uh that we played you know, Mrs. Stephen, mm-hmm. uh, Stephenson says, you know, that, you know, you can get scholarships and mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, full rides, you mm-hmm. know, to the university. So it's a really, really good um, uh, career goal to be a uh, chef. That's mm-hmm. really great. And then and then when you, uh, you know, you go into Erica, Erica has, I mean, these, these children are also taking care of people. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So talk about Erica and her story because um, she's living with her father, but she but she didn't know him as as a child, right? Um, he has, you know what? The, it sounds like I think the phone I'm on is dying. I'm gonna try oh, to switch okay. to another one. <laughs> okay. Just record this. Let me see. I'm sorry. Well, I may have a minute before it dies. Um, can you just <laughs> the question again? Okay. Uh, did you hear the question? I, I missed it. Okay. Uh, the question was uh, with regards to the children. Uh-huh. Um, uh, at least Erica and and um, and Tyree, they're both caregivers also. Uh-huh. Uh, particularly Erica, she takes care of her, her sister, whom exactly. she says she really admires because, you know, she's, vision impaired and and she's so independent and uh and um you know has such a great attitude and they live with her her father whom I'm understanding she didn't know really well and so I wasn't quite certain about that story um how she came to live with her father as opposed to cuz I think her parents are divorced right Uh-oh I think she's gone oh no <laughs> Ah, I think I lost my guest. Let me see. Her phone was dying. I think it might be gone. Let me see. Oh, well, I was speaking to (laughs) uh, the director of Pressure Cooker, um, Jennifer, and let me see if if she's back. Oh, there she is. (laughs) Um, Hi, Jennifer. Okay. (laughs) Can you hear it okay? Oh, yeah, I can hear it now. Uh Uh-huh. Hello? Oh, hi. Hi. Okay, we're back. I can hear you, but I don't think you can hear me. So I can um, hear you. Uh-uh. Sorry about that. Some phone okay. problems. Um, so <laughs> essentially, um, Erica's ex-ray, her parents were divorced when she and Ariel were very young, and her father moved to Philadelphia, and they stayed with her mom in New Jersey and then um, had to leave her mom's, and and they both went to live with her father, who, you know, they didn't really know because he had left when they were when they were little. So they now live with her, their father and their stepmother in Philadelphia. Okay, okay, yeah, and and um, it sounds. Oh, I don't see why you can't go to a college. Oh, well. to <laughs> I don't want to. I really don't. Because you want to fly. It's not. I don't. I don't like flying like that. No, I mean you want to fly out of the house. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's not that I don't want to get away from y'all. I just don't want to be near y'all. Wait. Huh? It's not that I don't want to get away from y'all. It's just that I need to leave. Uh, and no matter how you put it together, then you feel like we'll set over. Actually, I talked to Angel. He went to Atlanta. He was Angel. He graduated last year from Miss Stephenson. He got a scholarship to the Art Institute of Atlanta. And he he be ludicrous all the time. Who's in Rhode Island? Crystal got an $80,000 scholarship mm-hmm. to, um, to Providence, Rhode Island. That's in the world. And what's the requirement for that? But your essays and high-grade plan average, so I can't say. If I ask my dad right now, Daddy, how are we going to pay this school? I don't know what he's... I don't think he even know. But, but I just convinced myself that if I just stay focused on my goal, then it eventually all pay off in the end. I might have homework. Is I looking at school all day yesterday? Oh, okay. Yeah, your bus is here. (laughs) 
perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Jennifer, uh, tell us again where you're going to be this evening. So um, the film's playing at the Lumiere Theater in San Francisco, and Mark and I will be there at the 7 o'clock and 9.20 shows. And tomorrow we'll be um, in Berkeley at the Shattuck Theater and also at the Lumiere at 2.15 in the afternoon. Um, and then it's also playing in San Rafael. But they have they start their shows, I think, at, at 2 o'clock today. So people should come out and see it this weekend. Mm-hmm. So did you have fun being director? I loved it. Yep, it was it was great. I hope to do it again soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, super. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, and and you know, good luck um, on the. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have a great time with audiences in the evening. That's too bad. Um, you know, none of the subjects could come with you. That would be really know. cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how how do they like the film? Um, you know the the high school population. You know the you know, they, the teacher and the students. They they love it. They um they you know say that they don't really remember us being there as much as we were, but that we we managed to capture their senior year the way they remember it. So that was very gratifying. And um, our very first screening in Los Angeles was for an audience of 1,200 public high school kids, and um, they flipped out. And it was the first time Wilma or Fatimata or Erica Dudley had seen the film. So it was sort of a great experience, I think, for them. They were treated like rock stars <laughs> afterwards, and people asked for autographs, and they, the kids in L.A. wanted Wilma to come out there and teach them. And mm-hmm. so it was a great, a great screening. Oh, that's wonderful. So do they have culinary arts programs um, in a lot of the high schools in this country, or, or is, is this one unique? No, they do. Um, they do at least. Uh, the pro- the cities that CCAP is in are New York, Philly, L.A., Chicago, D.C., uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and all of Arizona. So there's definitely culinary in all those schools. And as I've been going around the country with the movie, like in Florida, there are definitely schools with culinary, um, and I think throughout the country, in Missouri, we met some culinary students, high school culinary students, and um, all over. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's really great. Um, so, um, the title "Pressure Cooker" it's got like, you know, it's like it's like a metaphor, huh? Uh, yeah, got a double meaning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And I guess coming up, you know, in your home, um, you said your father, he um, did you say that he actually he founded, he founded uh, the Careers for Culinary Arts program, and he's actually in the movie at the very end. So, oh, really? Um, which is great. But um, I actually have to run, Wanda. Oh, but no thank problem. you so much for having me. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, thank you. And I, I you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to be able to meet you this time around, but uh-huh. definitely look forward to meeting you. You know, as you, you know, you put out other films. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so uh, much. All right, you take okay. care. You too. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> Uh, that was Jennifer Grossman, and her film Pressure Cooker is opening uh, this weekend in Bay Area, and you can actually meet her and the director. And I am going to play another one of the songs that I really enjoyed, uh, um, Carmen Lundy, uh, Carmen Lundy's latest um, CD, uh, Solamente. And um, you know, we're honoring Comrade George Jackson. Uh, today, uh, today was the day that he was murdered, and uh, in San Quentin, 1971. And this particular song uh, is called um, what is it called? Uh, it's called "Move On," and 
it's kind of self-explanatory, you know, how it how it works thematically with, you know, what we've been talking about today on the show. <laughs> and I am having trouble remembering my alphabet as I scroll up and down the uh, playlist. Let's see. I just passed it up and trying to find it again. Let's see. Yeah, and Carmen Lundy is um, performing this weekend in L.A. If you are in town, you should definitely check her out. She's going to have a really wonderful uh, wonderful gig. Um, yeah, so here's Carmen Lundy, Move On, uh, and it's on her latest CD, Solamente. Solamente. 